like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. After introducing the book of Hebrews last week, I was given this quote from Dr. Charles Wagner. He says, Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to the Hebrews to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. That's pretty good. That's Hebrews in a nutshell. The only problem I have with it, it's kind of negative. Because the way that the writer of Hebrews tells the Hebrews not to be Hebrews is by presenting the superiority and preeminence of Jesus Christ. He goes through this book telling us that Jesus is better than, greater than everything else and everyone else. And the writer doesn't waste any time getting to his point. Ray Steadman says the epistle to the Hebrews begins as dramatically as a rocket shot to the moon. In this opening passage, he takes us from the pages of the Old Testament through the incarnation to the cross and then up to the very throne in heaven. Last week we said Hebrews reads more like a sermon than a letter. And like a good preacher, he's going to capture our attention and he is going to compel us to hear more. Look at verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Now for those of you who have taken English classes, what is the subject and verb of that first sentence? God has spoken. Now I hope you understand the significance of that. God is a God who communicates. We would know nothing of God if God didn't speak. Now I hear people all the time saying, well, you know, I think God is this way. Or I think God wouldn't do that. Well, let me tell you something. If God speaks then it trumps what I think. We can never go out and discover God. God must reveal Himself to us. And every religion in the world is really backwards. Every religion in the world is man trying to discover God. Man trying to get to God. Man trying to go from the natural to the supernatural. Man trying to buy a stairway to heaven. You see, I can't go in a phone booth, take off my clothes, and become Superman. I can't go from the natural to the supernatural. If I am going to understand anything about God, it's not because I figured Him out. It's not because I climbed high enough to get a glimpse at Him. It's because He came down and found me. It's because God speaks. Every religion in the world has it backwards. But the beauty of God's way is that God comes to man. He reveals Himself to us. The supernatural invades the natural. God speaks. Deity is not dumb. God is not silent. An old Puritan preacher used to say, there are just two things I want to know. First, does God speak? And then secondly, what does God say? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers both of those questions. God does speak, 
And God has spoken in two stages. Verse 1 says He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. And verse 2 says He has spoken in these last days. God spoke long ago. How did He speak? Through the prophets. Now, this is an important verse to show us the inspiration of the Old Testament. God spoke through prophets. It wasn't just men giving their ideas. God spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. But even though God was speaking through the prophets and all of Scripture is equally God's Word, there are a couple of factors we need to understand. One is that God's revelation is portional. Notice what it says in verse 1. It says, He spoke long ago in many portions and in many ways. Now in the Greek language, that's kind of a play on words because the two words there are Palumeros and Palutropos. God spoke in many portions. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that there are 39 books there. The Old Testament is made up of law, prophecy, history, psalms. It's many portions. It's, it's fragmentary. There's a lesson here. There's a lesson there. And we're told here that God spoke in many ways. Amos 3.7 says He revealed it to the prophets by secret counsel. Exodus 19.19 says God spoke to Moses with thunder. In Deuteronomy 5.22, God spoke from the midst of the fire and the cloud with a great voice. God spoke to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 in a gentle voice. God spoke in the Old Testament through visions, through dreams, through signs, through types. He even wrote on a wall once to communicate. He spoke in many ways. And so God's revelation is portional. But secondly, we need to understand that God's revelation is progressive. It doesn't come all at once. God didn't sit Adam down or Abraham down or Moses down and say, here's everything I have to say. No, it came gradually. You do the same thing with your kids. You teach your kids the ABCs, then you teach them words, then you teach them sentences, then you teach them paragraphs, and then you wish you hadn't taught them all those things. It's the same with God's revelation. It is progressive. Now, when I say that, I want you to be careful. It's not that it goes from less true to more true, but it is that it goes from incomplete to complete. It goes from promise to fulfillment. 1 Peter 1.11 says of the Old Testament prophets that they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, that's a very intriguing verse. It tells us that the prophets wrote the promises about the coming Messiah and then they read what they wrote to try to figure out what it meant. That's the way God spoke long ago through the prophets. But, verse 2 says, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. 
In the Old Testament, God spoke in many ways by many individuals. In these last days, God has spoken in one way by one individual. The Gospels tell us His story. The Epistles tell us His principles. Revelation tells us His future. No Old Testament prophet grasped the whole truth. Jesus is the truth. The Old Testament revelation is given fragmentary. Jesus gives us full and complete revelation. God first spoke through words. He has now spoken through His Son. In the Old Testament, God gave the promise. Now God has given the person. If you want to know what God has to say, then look at and listen to Jesus Christ. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 didn't know a whole lot of things, but she had one thing right. She said in John 4.25 to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, and when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Old Testament revelation is in bits and pieces. Adam and Eve were told in Genesis 3.15 which half of mankind the Messiah would come from. He would be a male. Abraham was told that he would be the nation through whom the Messiah would come. Jacob was told that he would be the tribe. David was told that he would be the family. Micah tells us the town, Bethlehem. Daniel tells us the time. Malachi tells us the forerunner. Jonah gives us a picture, a type, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And every one of those bits and pieces comes together in Jesus Christ. The revelation is whole and total. It is full and complete. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as may be the promises of God, in Him they are yes. And so we have established just in the first verse and a half the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is greater than the Old Testament prophets. Theirs was long ago. His is in these last days. Theirs was through men. His is through the Son. And theirs was fragmentary. His is complete. God has fully expressed Himself in Jesus Christ. Now in the rest of verse 2 and verse 3, the writer tells us in seven statements who Jesus is and what He has done. Because God has not simply spoken through His Son by what Jesus said. He has spoken through His Son by who Jesus is and what He has accomplished. He is the Word made flesh. He is God manifest in the flesh. He's the one who said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Now a lot of people today are confused about who Jesus is. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about who Jesus is. I want you to pay close attention because in, these, in this verse and a half, we're going to get God's revelation of who Jesus really is. And I've listed them in six points in your bulletin if you want to follow along. First of all, He is heir of all. Notice verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Because Jesus is the Son of God, He is the heir of God. Which means that Jesus holds the title deed 
to everything. Everything that exists, He owns. Colossians 1.16 says, All things have been created by Him and for Him. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. It all belongs to Him. I was eating lunch yesterday and I turned on the television to a, a channel and it was giving uh, the, the richest teenagers in the world. And I discovered something I didn't know. I discovered that the richest teenager in the world is Athena Onassis, the granddaughter of Aristotle Onassis. She has inherited a trust fund of $18 billion. She's 19 years old. She lives in a palace in Switzerland and takes her friends out for rides in her yacht. And I listened to that, and at first I thought, wow, $18 billion. And then I thought, what have you been studying all morning? Jesus is the heir of a trust fund that is everything. Next time you go on vacation, you see the Grand Canyon, guess what? It's His. Rocky Mountains are His. You sit on the Atlantic Ocean, it's His. The earth, the moon, the sun, the stars, the universe, there is not one single thing that He doesn't own. He is the heir of all things. All the gold, all the silver, all the jewels, all the pearls, all the diamonds are His. He is rich beyond riches, wealthy beyond measure, abundant beyond abundance. You know, that truth makes two facts amazing to me. The first fact is in 2 Corinthians 8 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. The one who is the heir of all things became poor for you and me. He was born in a stable. He didn't have a place to lay His head. He didn't have a coin to pay the taxes. He had His only clothes stripped off of Him and He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Why? The rest of that verse tells us that you through His poverty might become rich. The heir of all things became poor that you through His poverty might become rich. You see, you and I, if you are believers, are children of God. And there's a great verse in Romans chapter 8. Sometimes we overlook it. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, We are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I love that word, joint heirs. What's that mean? That means whatever he inherits, I inherit. And what does he inherit? All things. He became poor that you and I might join with Him in being heirs of all things. That's an amazing concept. But when we understand that He is heir of all things, there's also another amazing thing to me, and that is that men still reject Him. Jesus told this parable in Matthew 21. He told about a landowner who planted a vineyard and then rented it out to some servants. And he went away, and when harvest time came, he sent servants back to get his share of the harvest. And the men who had rented the vineyard 
It says they beat some and they killed some and they stoned others. And when the landowner found out, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send my son and they'll listen to him. And when the son showed up, they said, this is the heir. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Men are trying to seize by force what God wants to give by grace. That's an amazing thing. The one who is speaking to us today is the heir of all things. But not only that, secondly, he is the creator of all. Verse 2 continues, through whom also he made the world. Now the word world there is not the Greek word cosmos, which is the word for this earth. It's the Greek word ions, which is usually translated ages. Jesus Christ is the creator of the ages. In other words, he didn't just make this earth. He made all that exists in time and space. All the universe was created by Jesus Christ. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, we're going to find out that he created it out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. He said, let it be, and it was. You say, well, Dan, that's kind of hard to believe. Well, it may be, but I find that it's harder to believe the alternative. And that is that this vast, beautiful, organized, synchronized universe is just a chance accident. Sir John Eccles, Nobel laureate in neurophysiology in, in Chicago in 1968, said that the odds were against the right combination of circumstances occurring to evolve intelligent life on Earth. In fact, he said the odds against it are 400,000 trillion, 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 trillion to one. The odds against it happening are astronomically improbable. And after saying that, he said this. He said, I believe such did happen, but it could never happen again. Now, that takes a lot of faith. I'm not as bright as that guy, but I'll tell you this. It's not just astronomically improbable for something to accidentally come out of nothing. It is absolutely impossible for something to come out of nothing unless you've got a creator. Someone has said that the best argument against an atheist is to have him over for dinner and then while he's eating, ask if he thinks there's a cook. The Bible says that there's a cook and his name is Jesus. John 1.3 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1.16 says, All things have been created by him. And Isaiah chapter 40 describes how it did, he did it. It says, He measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He marked off the heavens by the span. A span is when you hold your hand out. It's the distance from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. 
He, he marked off the heavens by the span. He calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. He weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. He sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He puts the stars in place and calls them all by name. That's Jesus. If you want to be amazed by His creation, you just have to look at yourself. I mean, the human body is an amazing creation. We take it for granted, but see, watch this. I, I've got... This is out here. It's just connected by this. Now watch this. Do you see that? I can do that without looking. I can stop. See, that? that's an amazing thing. We, we take that for granted. The human body is amazing amazing vehicle. Your heart beats 800 million times in a normal lifetime. It pumps enough blood to fill a string of tank cars on a track from here to Atlanta. Your ear receives sound through airwaves, and by the time it goes from your outer ear through your middle ear to your inner ear, it has transferred those airwaves into fluid without losing a sound. That's amazing. Just a tiny half-cubit inch of brain cells stores all the memories of a lifetime. Now, some of those of us who are getting older are finding less access to that little cubic inch of brain cells. But it's there. And your Creator is Jesus. I don't know if you... It, it helps me sometimes to kind of get a grasp on just how immense this universe is. And I know I've probably said some of these things before, but the moon is 211,463 miles away. That sounds like a long way, but that's not far when you're talking about the universe. Uh, you could walk it in 27 years. The sun is 93 million miles away. And if you could go by car and drive straight through, no rest stops, no spending the night anywhere, if you could drive straight through at the speed limit to the sun, which is 93 million miles away, it would take you 193 years. And the sun is large. When you got to the sun, if you could bore a hole in the sun, you could fill it with 1,200,000 earths and still have room around the outside edge for 4,300,000 moons. That's the sun. But again, the sun is large to us, but it's not large when we're talking about the universe. There is a star by the name of Betelgeuse. It's 880 quadrillion miles away, and it's nearly a thousand times larger than the sun. Its di diameter is somewhere between 200 and 250 million miles. Now imagine that you've got a star large enough that you could put the very orbit of the earth inside of it. That's big. The sun is 93 million miles away. Now just to give you some perspective, if one inch represented 93 million miles, here's the earth, here's the sun. That would mean that the outside edge of our solar system, Pluto, would be 39 and a half inches away. 
So here's the earth, here's the sun. I, if I take a long stride, that's 39 and a half inches. So here's Pluto. Now, the sun's one inch from the earth. If you wanted to get to the nearest star besides the sun to our earth, it is Alpha Centauri. And with every inch representing 93 million miles, you know how far you would have to go? To get to the nearest star, I, I got my car out and I drove toward Jackson yesterday, and it's 4.3 miles with every inch representing 93 million miles to the nearest star. So let's say we'll have Tim Singleton go. It, it, it turned out to be somewhere like right between Walmart and the McDonald's in Jackson. Okay, so here's the earth, there's the sun, Here's Pluto, and Tim is standing in Jackson. He's the nearest star. But you know, when you're talking about the universe, that's nothing. Because ours is just one among many galaxies. In fact, thousands of galaxies. Ours is called the Milky Way. The nearest galaxy to us is called the Large Magellanic Cloud. Now, if you wanted to get to the Large Magellanic Cloud, the nearest galaxy to us, with every inch representing 93 million miles, you would have to go out the door, head for Jackson, past Tim Singleton. He'd probably be eating Egg McMuffins. Go past him and keep going until you had circled the Earth six times with every inch representing 93 million miles to get to the nearest galaxy to our galaxy. Or if you're better with speed, the, the, the fastest anybody can travel is the speed, well, not anybody, the fastest speed we know of is the speed of light. And the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second. If you could travel 186,000 miles a second, the speed of light, you would pass the moon in a second and a half. You would pass the sun in a little over eight minutes, going at the speed of light. And going at 186,000 miles a second, you know how long it would take you to get to the nearest galaxy? It would take you 180,000 years. And when you got there, you would not have put a dent in this universe. I tried to find out where the farthest galaxy is anybody has found or indicated or discovered. And the best I can tell is astronomers have located one that is 18 billion light years away. Now that's not the edge of our universe, that's just the edge of our technology. It would take you 18 billion years going at the speed of light to get there. And Jesus created it all. And then thirdly, He is God of all. Look at verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of of God's glory. That word radiance indicates the light that streams from a source of light. See, we don't actually see the sun. We see the rays that come from the sun. But just as you cannot separate the sun's light from the sun itself, you cannot separate the nature of Christ from the nature of His Father. Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God. And then the next phrase adds, and the exact representation of His nature. That term exact representation is used in classical Greek to indicate a stamp or a, a seal. They would often have a signet ring that would have uh, uh, their uh, 
chest or logo on it, and they would press it into wax in order to make an imprint. And it would make the exact imprint that came off the ring. And what he's saying here is that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God. He is God manifest in flesh. And that's why he could say in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's why Paul could say in Colossians 2, 9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see, when it says God spoke, he's telling us that God didn't just call us long distance to talk to us. He came to us. John says in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The One speaking to us today is very God of very God. And then fourthly, He is sustainer of all. Verse 3 continues and says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. He not only created all things and will one day inherit all things, He holds all things together. Colossians 1.17 says, And in Him all things hold together. Jesus Christ sustains the universe. The deists say that God created everything and then walked away and got distracted. This verse tells me Jesus Christ created everything and He is intimately involved in holding it all together. Do you ever think that we live on a planet where the possibilities of chaos are just one accident away? I mean, our main source of heat is 93 million miles away. What is it that keeps the sun from warming up or cooling down and causing us to either burn up or freeze? What is it that keeps meteors from just showering the earth and destroying us all? What is it that keeps the earth tilted at exactly 23 degrees so that we experience the four seasons? What is it that keeps the moon? At, did you know that the moon causes tides? If the moon were any further away or closer in, it would affect our tides. And if it, if it moved, it would cause the tides twice a day to come in like tsunamis and just flood the earth. Why is it that those things stay where they're at and everything stays synchronized in our universe? Well, this verse tells us that Jesus Christ holds it all together. And how does He do it? Well, how did He create the universe? Go back to Genesis 1. What does it say? God said, and it became. Notice what it says here. It says Jesus holds it all together, verse 3, by the word of His power. Have you ever noticed that everything Jesus says happens he stands in a boat in the midst of a stormy sea and says, Peace be still, and the wind and the sea are calm. He looks down at Jairus' dead daughter and says, Little girl, arise. And she stands up and walks. He says to the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand, and it's restored. He stands over a paralyzed man and says, Rise, take up your bed and go home. And the man stands up and he walks away. He stands before the tomb of a dead man and says, Lazarus, come forth. And out he comes. 
Whatever Jesus says happens. And he holds this universe together by the word of his power. Now, I think it's exciting to apply that understanding to Christ's work in our lives. Because do you think that Jesus finishes what he starts? Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. And then fifthly, we see that he is redeemer of all. Look again at verse 3. It says, when he had made purification of sins. Now, Jesus is the heir of all. He's the creator of all. He's God of all. He's sustainer of all. And as amazing as all thing, those things are, this phrase is far more amazing to me. Jesus purged or purified or cleansed our sins. And what that phrase conveys is that he was taken and abused and beaten and nailed to a tree and died. Now, why would the Creator hang on a cross? Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. He died on that cross to pay the debt that you could never pay. He died in our place. He was cleansing our sins. The hymn writer says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, to make communication with you and me possible, the sin that kept us away from God had to be dealt with. And Jesus came down here to cleanse our sin. When we get into the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then later in that same chapter, Hebrews 10.19, it says, We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What a message. God has spoken in His Son, and what is the message? I love you. He died in our place. He is the Redeemer of all. But that all has a condition. It's all who receive Him. The Bible says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And then sixthly and finally, we're told in this passage, He is exalted above all. The end of verse 3 says, When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now that tells us two things. Number one, His work is done. We said last week there are no chairs in the temple. Priests stood continually offering sacrifices. But Hebrews 10.12 says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. His work is done. Salvation is accomplished. It's paid for. It's finished. And then secondly, this tells me he is now exalted because the right hand of God is the place of power and honor and glory. Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. God has spoken 
in his son. What a privilege it is for us to live in these last days. What a privilege it is for us to have the full and complete revelation of God in Christ. You say, well, Dan, what exactly is he saying to us? Well, let me just give you a little reminder, a little refresher course. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who believes in me shall never die. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. Today, God is speaking to you in His Son, who is heir of all, creator of all, God of all, sustainer of all, redeemer of all, and exalted above all. What more can God say? The only question that remains is, are you listening? And how are you going to respond? Will you hear His voice today and believe on Him? We're going to close our service today. I'm going to have the praise team come back and they're going to lead us uh, in that song, Lord Have Mercy. It's really a prayer from our hearts to His. I'm going to ask those that were baptized to come forward. And if God has spoken to your heart today, I'm going to ask you to come forward as well. Coming down this aisle doesn't save you. But... We would love to sit down with you and talk with you and show you how you can come to place your faith in Jesus Christ today. If you have questions, you come as we sing together. Let's stand and close our service by singing together to the Lord. You can see the folks up front again. I remind you that this is uh, Katie O'Laughlin, again, who was baptized this morning. She has also come to join our fellowship. Uh, next to her is uh, Nathan Ballard. Uh, who was baptized this morning, and alongside him is Shannon White, and they have come today to join our fellowship as well. And then Betsy Chisholm and Jim with their, their boys, Jimmy and Corey. And of course, Betsy was baptized this morning, and they have come as a family to join our fellowship today. So I'm going to ask you all, if you would, to, to follow Dad out to the lobby, and after we close in prayer, be sure and encourage these folks on their commitment today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for our time today in your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture that reminds us of who Jesus is, reminds us that you are all about communicating with us. And Father, we rejoice in that truth, and yet it's a sobering reality to those of us who may not be listening because we realize if we're not listening, we don't really have an excuse because you can't say it any more clearly than sending your son to die in our place. And Lord, I pray that truly we might look at our hearts today, might respond to the truth of your gospel, 
For those of us who do not know you, that we might come to know you. For those of us who may know you already, that we would let you take full control of our lives, that you would soften our hearts and change us and make us to be the people you desire us to be. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.